0: The issues of
1: elevated blood sugar and risks to mother and baby are really like on a spectrum. And the higher you go, it's just sort of a gradient of like increased risk for baby growing larger than you expect, elevated insulin levels in baby, and
0: so on. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. This episode is sponsored by Full Well Prenatal Multivitamin, formerly known as Full Circle Prenatal. Full Well Prenatal is the only prenatal multivitamin on the market with optimum nutrients for before, during, and after pregnancy. Use the code less Stressed to get a discount at fullwellfertility.com. All right, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Lily Nichols returning, who is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And today we are going to focus on the latter. Welcome back, Lily. Thanks for having me back. Well, this is where things really started for you was with the Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, right? Will you tell us you were working, was it WIC, but way back in the day at the early part of your career um, in California, am I getting that right? Like what happened where you thought, what in the world are we doing? (laughs) Why do do I care about this topic? Uh, Yeah.
1: Well, so I was actually working twofold at the public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program, which is more widely known as sweet success. And I was working clinically as a dietitian and diabetes educator under a perinatologist who specialized in gestational diabetes. So I was like the sole diabetes educator and, and dietitian on staff there educating all the clients. So it was a a very interesting to have a bit of a, contrast between what the guidelines were saying, and then what I was seeing in clinical practice for how those guidelines were actually working in real life. And it was actually pretty early on into my clinical work that I was like, wow, this is not working well. About half of my clients would end up on medication or insulin. And as somebody who had already been sort of eating real food, ancestrally focused, and had played around with lower carbohydrate intake kind of felt the benefits for myself personally i was like wow this kind of doesn't make sense that we have these clients who have failed a glucose tolerance test and now we're giving them that same number of carbs or more per meal and expecting them to have normal blood sugars and it's clearly not working so yeah that was the start of it all which led to a very long road of diving deeper into like how our guidelines were initially set especially for carb levels, and whether it's safe or not to go lower carb in pregnancy, thinking about sort of a little more outside of the box, not just like carb levels, but what are the micronutrients we might be missing out on that support insulin sensitivity and like glucose metabolism? Where do we get those in foods? Could we promote eating more of those foods? It all kind of came to a head between those two professional roles that I was in.
0: Well, let's talk about that. How did the guidelines come to be? And I don't think they've been updated. I mean, you talk about this, this is your thing. So I don't think that they've probably been updated, because I feel like most guidelines always need an update. But tell us about how they came to be. And has there been any positive progress, since you've done so much work in this area? Have you seen any changes out of curiosity?
1: Well, it's a difficult question to answer, because different organizations suggest different guidelines for gestational diabetes. And I can say we were working on like slight tweaks to those guidelines. Like I was involved in like the 2011 guidelines that we worked on with California diabetes and pregnancy program. But when you're talking about revised guidelines, you're talking about really, really minor shifts. You know, it could take six months of deliberation between myself and the other dietitians in the state I was working with to like change a sentence. I'm I'm not kidding you. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about like completely revising them, there's just a lot of bureaucratic red tape to that coming to pass. And a lot of these organizations need to be at least somewhat aligned with like the national dietary guidelines and like the other state and like WIC guidelines, like nobody wants to step on each other's toes. So I think that's why they really haven't changed substantially in decades. I can say, you know, a positive thing is like the Czech Republic. Yes, that tiny little country in Europe did revise their guidelines in 2016 following seeing my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and putting that into practice and seeing how well it worked. They did revise their guidelines. They changed their Minimum, what they used to have was a minimum carb intake of 200 grams per day, and they flipped it on its head. They put a maximum of 200 grams of carbs per day and really promoted more protein intake. And they've seen a dramatic effect on their clients results. So now they're down from like a 40 to 50% of their clients requiring medication or insulin down to about 10%, which is pretty much the same, same thing that we saw in practice. It's also the same thing that you see play out in the recent. When you're looking at like a lower glycemic index diet and glycemic variability in pregnancy or chances of requiring medication or insulin, you see the same things in the research. As to how the guidelines were like initially set, that is something that I really dove into with Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, mostly focused on the carb intake levels and whether those make sense and why they were set at the levels that they are. And then in my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, I go into a whole bunch of other different guidelines because there's a lot of things with the prenatal guidelines in general that could use some revising in my opinion. But if we take it just from the carb intake, it's really actually kind of hard to find where they come from. It took a lot of digging because what I found was a lot of the research papers and guidelines just sort of like cited each other without citing the original source of the information. And I was able to find that in an Institute of Medicine document on macronutrient requirements. And so essentially, they start with like a quote, minimum intake of carbohydrates, that's at about 100 grams per day. And then they add on additional carb needs for the increase in maternal energy needs. And there's an assumption that a certain portion of that minimum of 45% of calories and carbs is part of that. So that will add 30 or so grams. And then you add additional for the amount of glucose used by the fetal brain. And by the guidelines, they're not thinking about glucose that can be created in the human body from other energy sources. It's purely like, assuming this all comes from the diet, we're going to add 30, 35 grams for fetal brain energy needs. And that's how they came up with this 175 gram Minimum. They did round up a little bit actually when you do the math. But nonetheless, if we actually go further into that document, it does contradict itself because they do say that technically the human body can survive with an intake of zero carbohydrates provided that sufficient protein and fat is included in the diet. So there's no deficit in calories. Your body can create glucose via gluconeogenesis. So There is a lot of contradictory information there. Certainly, we know traditionally, you know, you have ancestral cultures who live really far from the equator, who just by way of their climate are unable to eat a large amount of carbohydrates. And clearly, they have been able to survive and reproduce. Am I recommending people eat zero carbs? No, but I'm just questioning, like, do you really have to eat a minimum of 175 grams? Like, couldn't we have a little wiggle room to match your carb intake to how much your body can tolerate. And that's really what I argue for in real food for gestational diabetes is just match your carb intake to how much your body can handle.
0: So to go back to the story of kind of how it began when you were working in practice, and as you said, like the Czech Republic, which is a great kind of case study, and it's nice that you have that, right? That one, thanks for updating your guidelines based on my work. That probably feels good <laughs> for you. For sure. um, but instead of 40 or 50% of their people requiring medication, they're down to 10%. I think that's what you said you saw in practice as well. Did you get a lot of support from the providers in your clinic to do things the way you saw them laid out in the research in a way that made sense. I mean, like you said, why do we treat with high carbs when we are failing a glucose tolerance test? It doesn't make sense. And so you do a great job of being frank. And I'm wondering if they were supportive and you were able to change that immediately in practice.
1: I was in a very unique situation and that the clinic I was in was associated with UCLA medical center and we had like residents coming in and out through their training. And the perinatologist I worked with was like the head chief of perinatology at like the, one of the largest hospitals in LA. So she was very much like a research focused kind of a person and very open to like, let's do what works. And she really believed that we should be doing as much as possible without resorting to medication or insulin. So she actually put it on me as the diabetes educator to make the call whether or not a person started medication or insulin. And it was like, do everything you can. And if you see things that seem outdated in the materials that we're giving to our clientele, feel free to update those. So I was actually given a lot of autonomy in changing things. And again, a lot of this is not like Seriously drastic. I mean, some of the things that are in the guidelines are not incorrect. I mean, they do promote like sufficient protein intake, although sufficient is uh, arguable and arguably higher than the guidelines. They do recommend fresh fruits and vegetables. They do recommend paying attention to the quantity of carbs. Their whole shtick is just if blood sugars are still high after eating our minimum of 175, start medication or insulin. Like that's very clear in the guidelines. And what I was shifting was no, actually say your blood sugar is coming out high after you've had say 45 grams of carbs at the meal. Let's try 30 grams of carbs and see if that's something your body can tolerate. Let's try upping the protein a little bit. Let's not fear fat. Let's not fear salt. Let's not fear all these things that are actually not problematic to our health that have been unfortunately, you know. Promulgated over the decades and see, like, let's adjust to how your body responds. So, for me, it was very much personalized. And my counseling approach was also putting the onus on the women themselves to, like, when we meet next time, I want you to tell me what you've learned about your blood sugar over the past two weeks and what you figured out. And they come back and they know, oh, I noticed when I had like three tortillas at this meal you know, my blood sugar was too high. And then like the next meal, I decided to limit it to one or two, or maybe have like one tortilla and have like beans as my carb source, which I remember you said are like higher fiber and protein. And like my blood sugar was great. So, you know, I know how many tortillas I can get away with. Like Mm -hmm. it was empowering them to make the choices. So to go back to the original question, it actually was Well received, but I think it was very specific to the type of setting I was in and the type of providers I was working in kind of like the research and teaching focus of that setting. And I know that's not typical in a lot of the workspaces that dietitians work in.
0: And we should, I will revisit that question. You know, what would you say to providers that are in kind of a non-supportive environment? And we can go there now, actually. Maybe it fits better later after we talk about all of the options. Something I want to highlight is that what you're describing, there's nothing crazy about it right? It's pretty normal from how we should actually do our normal life. Like, if I eat this, and this is kind of the reaction, should we all take a couple weeks and check our blood sugar, right? It's a decent argument. Um, Blood sugar is an easy biometric marker that kind of lets us know, you know, how our fatigue might be sometimes how our energy, how a lot of different things may work for us. So them just adjusting their intake to not a crazy, low amount, there's nothing that we should be batting an eye about from those recommendations. Right. Right. That said, some people call you the, uh, you've been called, I've seen you say this and then kind of say, that's not how that's not right. Um, (laughs) but you've kind of been called the ketogenic dietitian or like the ketogenic pregnancy, keto, whatever you've been called things, right? That's just how online world is, especially when you're outspoken. Tell us what you've been called and more about that.
1: I don't even know what I've been called because I try not to pay too much attention to it. But I think some people think I'm rather extreme just because there's so many things in the guidelines that I believe are due for an update. But I think my words sometimes got a little twisted, right? So Real Food for Gestational Diabetes was published in 2015. And this was kind of before keto, ketogenic diet got like really popular and mainstream. Um, so there are some people who have taken liberties in interpreting my recommendations. So in real food for gestational diabetes, I actually had to have a full chapter on like why I believe the carb guidelines are incorrect and not evidence-based and could be updated and why it's safer to go low carb in pregnancy in the context of low carb compared to the high carb guidelines, right? Part of that argument was that being in low level nutritional ketosis, mild nutritional ketosis is a physiological normal state that your body goes in and out of in pregnancy and actually goes in and out of during pregnancy more easily than any of us who are not currently pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people take that to mean I should be in ketosis at all times and eat the fewest amount of carbohydrates humanly possible. And that's actually not my stance. I think there is room for carbohydrates in the diet. Choose the best quality carbohydrates, eat the types of carbohydrates that your body can personally process well, because all of us have differences, right? Some people have like an easy time processing a banana and other people, bananas spike them like crazy. Some people have an issue with white rice. Some people don't you know, so it's like personalize it, the whole eat to the meter idea, what is your blood sugar meter telling you, and then respond to that. So I think some people just make assumptions that I'm like, ridiculously low carb, or like promoting that everybody goes on a ketogenic diet. And I don't believe a ketogenic diet is necessarily harmful or dangerous in pregnancy. But I do think you have to be more careful if you're going to eat that sort of a way, because depending on your interpretation of what a ketogenic diet is, if that's like a low-protein ketogenic diet, like what they use for epilepsy, that's not safe in pregnancy. You actually need a lot more protein in pregnancy. So it shouldn't be low-protein keto. I don't believe people should be like counting carbs from their non-starchy vegetables and their almonds and their berries and their avocados. People take things to extremes. So Because I've defended the safety of low-carb in pregnancy, and because I've spoken on a lot of platforms that are among clinicians supportive of low-carb, I think people sort of lump me into different categories where, in my opinion, it's a misinterpretation of the work. And I'm always really clear when I do speak at low-carb conferences or for organizations that generally support a low-carb diet. I'm always really specific at defining what I mean about low-carb in pregnancy because actually for somebody who has been very, very low-carb, like say they've been on a ketogenic diet eating less than like 20 grams of carbs per day, I'm actually probably gonna, gonna recommend that they increase their carbohydrate intake in pregnancy because you are going to need more of certain micronutrients that you'll find in carbohydrate foods. Also, your body's probably gonna tell you that it wants more carbs in pregnancy. So roll with it, but not to a level that, you know, your blood sugar does no longer tolerates that amount. Right. So it's mm-hmm. just, I feel like I'm kind of in this funny in-between phase where like, yes, I'm defending the safety of this, but I'm not going so far as to say everyone needs to eat keto or cut out all carbs. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's unfortunately the interpretation.
0: Yeah. And I'll reiterate what you said, which is that being a nutritional ketosis where your body burns fat for energy, where you might have an elevation in ketones can be something that anybody can do from time to time that's functioning well. Sure. And in pregnancy, it can happen. So what we don't want is starvation ketosis, right, where you're not getting enough intake overall. And that's never gonna be good. We wanna make sure we're like we have dense nutrition. And I do wanna talk about the nutrients that support blood sugar as well. But before that, a little bit more on ketosis. So some women do choose to use a ketone meter. There's a few ways to look at ketones, right? First of all, Will you please tell us what ketones are, how to measure them, how to measure them properly in pregnancy if someone was interested in monitoring this as an additional marker in addition to their blood sugar?
1: Right. So ketones are a byproduct of your body using fat for energy, whether that's stored body fat that is breaking down or dietary fat. If your diet is low enough in carbohydrates or you're in a fasted state, which in pregnancy could just mean a couple of hours between meals, by the way, you can easily dip into ketosis between meals and you most certainly dip into ketosis overnight during an overnight fast, pretty much everyone who's pregnant, unless you're eating super high carb, you do. It's nutritionally, physiologically normal and arguably beneficial for your body to go in and out of it from time to time. The ways to measure ketones are, you know, there's several different ways. The most common I'd say clinically, although there's some other, you know, ketone meters on the market that measure it differently would be urine ketones and blood ketones. And urine ketones are for better, for worse, the most common way of checking ketones in pregnancy. It's most typically done for women with gestational diabetes, but sometimes they'll just check it when you come in for your visit when they screen your urine. And urine ketones are not reflective of blood ketone levels. They actually do not correlate. So they're clinically meaningless. However, a lot of practitioners will freak out if urine ketones are high. I'll even tell you in the the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program guidelines, they don't even recommend checking urine ketones because they're not accurate and not a reflection of anything of value. If you want to check ketone levels to see if they're quote safe or not, and to throw it out there, there isn't like a known level of like safe or optimal, although there is a known level of unsafe, like in the case of diabetic ketoacidosis, which a normal healthy person is not going to go into, by the way. Um, But blood ketones are the only way to like accurately measure like a meaningful level of ketones in your body. And typically in pregnancy, you know, you're going to have just a very mild level of blood ketones. You can have super elevated urine ketones and be in very mild nutritional ketosis as measured via blood ketones. So if you do want to check it, check it with a blood ketone meter. And there are some just like over-the-counter ones on the market. Oftentimes it's like they can double as a blood glucose meter and a blood ketone meter. So you can definitely check out those if you're interested. But I actually don't recommend really routinely screening unless there's some a problem you're looking for. Like maybe if you're a practitioner and you're working with a pregnant woman who you suspect is not eating enough food. So like you want to check for starvation ketosis, that would be a higher ketone level than just standard. So you have someone who's like not gaining enough weight, you suspect maybe an eating disorder, something going on. You could check blood ketone levels at that visit if you wanted to. For somebody where all other clinical parameters look normal and their blood sugar is normal and their weight gain is normal and everything looks good with baby and them, I wouldn't bother because we actually have not defined what's like "Safe or optimal, we know when things become problematic, but like we don't know, you know, the difference between like zero point one or zero point five. I don't think that's actually clinically relevant. We just don't have the data on it.
0: Mm. When what is the number where it's problematic? You said that we don't. I know have when to it's pull it up,
1: but usually when you're getting above like three or you know." Five, you start getting like really high on the ketones and I'd have to look up the actual units. Again, it's not something I usually measure, but it is something I've discussed in some presentations. Like Sometimes I've actually taken it out of my presentations because people just get like crazy obsessed with the actual blood ketone readings when we really don't know. There's also like different ways of measuring it. So like I'm just pulling up a study from 2016 And they were measuring it in micromoles per liter, but usually we're measuring it in millimoles per liter. So you have to divide by a thousand, but just to give you kind of like, they were looking at uh ketone levels and mothers right before delivery. And then in the placenta in umbilical cord blood. And then they looked at newborns at soon, relatively soon after they were born four days of life, 30 days of life. So like placental ketone levels were like two millimoles per liter. Circulating ketone levels in mom were like less than 0.06. So not high, but the body was actually preferentially involved in ketogenesis in the placenta because the ketones are actually involved in supporting fetal brain development, which a lot of people find surprising. In the umbilical cord at delivery, they were at 0.7 So arguably like slightly elevated, but not elevated at a level that would be problematic. That's like physiologically normal. These are normal, healthy pregnant women didn't have gestational diabetes. Their blood sugar levels were normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So your body just goes in and out of mild ketosis. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I was actually speaking at a low carb conference when I was pregnant with my second and there was a vendor there who had like a blood ketone and blood glucose meter. And I measure my ketones. This was actually after eating and mine were like one millimole per liter. And I was like after a lunch that probably had 30 or 45 grams of carbs. I mean, my body was still in nutritional ketosis. (laughs) So it's like, okay, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. Baby's healthy. I don't have gestational diabetes. I don't have elevated blood sugar. I'm in a fed state and my Mm -hmm. body is still in mild nutritional ketosis. I mean, ketones supply like 30% of fetal brain energy needs. They are used as fuel. If they were harmful to a baby, your placenta certainly would not be producing them and delivering them. (laughs) To the baby as a fuel source.
0: Yeah, when we discover things that are unusual to us the first time, or we are unexpected to us, we should probably step back and observe what our body's doing first, because um, let's go ahead and assume nature knows what it's doing more than we do if we're just discovering it. So that's ketosis. Let's talk about how insulin changes throughout pregnancy or and blood sugar ranges a little bit. As you grow, that does change a little bit, right? As you advance in correct gestation. So,
1: in early pregnancy, your body's actually in anabolic state. It wants to accrue maternal fat stores and sort of like Build up an energy supply that will later be transferred to baby. So, interestingly, even though it's not typically the time where, on the scale, you're like gaining a lot of weight, you actually are accruing fat mass in early pregnancy. Your body is more insulin sensitive. So, it's specifically trying to store energy. And as you get further in pregnancy, your body becomes a little more insulin resistant. You end up in what they would call a catabolic state and your body starts preferentially transferring more of that energy to baby. You do start dipping into your maternal fat stores to transfer that energy reserve to baby. And that continues actually postpartum, by the way, you continue breaking down your maternal fat stores in this way to fuel breast milk production. But there is a shift. And so some people refer to pregnancy as like a sort of a diabetic state because in the latter half of pregnancy, your body is more insulin resistant. Interestingly though, blood sugar levels don't tend to go up in pregnancy. They actually tend to go down. Some research suggests they are lower by about 20%. And we actually see this reflected in the sort of optimal blood sugar ranges that are suggested. In pregnancy, and also just the average blood sugar levels in a healthy pregnant woman who does not have gestational diabetes or any known pre existing insulin resistance. So it's an interesting conundrum. You end up more insulin resistant, but your body maintains lower blood sugar levels. And it does this with changes in the pancreas. So your pancreas will pump out anywhere from like two to three times more. Insulin in late pregnancy than it does in a non pregnant state. So your body is designed to become more insulin resistant, but it's also designed to produce more insulin and maintain lower blood sugar levels. And this is all to like keep baby growing under any circumstances as well as to go back to the ketosis conversation, that's also designed to keep a consistent fuel source available to baby, even when you're not in the fed state, such as overnight when you're not eating all night. I mean, maybe you're waking up to have a snack. I know I had phases in pregnancy where I was so hungry, I needed a snack in the middle of the night. But when you're in a fasted state overnight, your body is going to go into ketosis during that time and be, yes, there's going to be low levels of glucose sent over to baby as well. But in addition to that ketones. So that 24 seven, that baby is getting nourishment and energy.
0: I want to make sure I heard and repeat this correctly. In pregnancy, blood sugar levels, maybe 20% lower. So we have our kind of scale for what normal blood sugar is when you're not pregnant. And then during pregnancy, is there a different scale?
1: There is. So if you're just a diabetes educator with a non-pregnant population, you're probably recommending keeping your blood sugar below 140 after meals and fasting blood sugar under 100 Mm -hmm. in pregnancy. And the guidelines are different depending on the organization's guidelines that you're following. But I go with California diabetes and pregnancy program ones, which are a little stricter and more reflective of optimal blood sugar in pregnancy. They recommend less than 90 for fasting and after meals, typically less than 120 at the two hour mark. Some clinics recommend less than 120 at the one hour mark. Others say less than 130. And that's in milligrams per deciliter. But you also see it reflected in like the range of sort of safe fasting blood sugar. Typically for like a non-pregnant diabetic, there's concern if you start dipping below 70. And in pregnancy, they shift that down to 60 as a lower range. So most often we're seeing fasting blood sugars really in like the seventies and eighties. There's a pretty large study that looked at blood sugar levels in non-diabetic healthy BMI pregnant women in the third trimester. And this was a review of like 11 studies that had looked at this and they found that average fasting blood sugar levels were about 71 milligrams per deciliter Average blood sugar levels an hour after a meal was about 109, and two hours after a meal was about 99. So even if you go by the gestational diabetes goals, like those are still arguably higher than what we observe in pregnant women who don't have pre existing blood sugar issues. Just mm-hmm. is personally, why I like to target on the lower end because we know that the issues of elevated blood sugar and risks to mother and baby are really like on a spectrum. And the higher you go, it's just sort of a gradient of like increased risk for baby growing larger than you expect, elevated insulin levels in baby, and so on.
0: If you had someone walk in and their fasting blood sugar was 40, 50, and they feel great, would you have any concerns?
1: I've never had a person come in with fasting blood sugars of 40 or 50 unless their meter is not working properly. Occasionally, if they're using CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, sometimes for somebody who's like really well, like fat adapted, like they function well on a ketogenic diet, sometimes their body will maintain a lower average blood sugar level and not have an issue. But there's also questions as to how accurate CGMs Mm -hmm. are at some of those lower readings. So for somebody who's not like on insulin or medication, that would be causing them to go hypoglycemic. It's really, really rare. I've actually never seen it in a non like type one diabetic fasting blood sugar levels in the fifties or forties, I should say high fifties I have seen. And I've worn a CGM a number of times. And again, there's questions on the accuracy of certain CGMs at really low blood sugar readings. Occasionally I would be in like the high fifties or low sixties, but you double check with the finger stick and it's usually actually in the high sixties or the Mm -hmm. seventies. So they can be off as with anything, there are imperfect devices and imperfect measurements for checking things. So that's why sometimes you want to have a backup just to see, are you truly low? Are you symptomatically hypoglycemic or is this Mm A reader error. Right.
0: It's a great point. You were talking earlier about micronutrients for insulin sensitivity. Let's talk about micronutrients for insulin sensitivity, foods that are rich in these nutrients. And I know you said that was something I think that you implemented in practice when you were realizing there's a lot more we can do here besides give people 200 grams of carbs. What were you seeing in practice as you would implement that? Because that's one of my favorite things is to look at the micronutrients involved in insulin because it really changes that hanger factor.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> and as somebody who's like previously experienced being like prone to reactive hypoglycemia. And at this point, that doesn't happen anymore unless I shift back eating crap <laughs> and too, and way too many carbs for my body. A lot of the micronutrients involved in blood sugar metabolism and insulin fall into the categories of like minerals and B vitamins. For the most part, there are some exceptions to that. Vitamin D, for example, plays a role in insulin sensitivity. And so we do see generally women with gestational diabetes have lower vitamin D levels, but also they respond to vitamin D supplementation and increasing their vitamin D levels with lower insulin resistance, improved insulin sensitivity, improved fasting blood sugar levels, for example, magnesium vital for proper insulin sensing. So I do typically recommend if we're in a situation where they can't afford supplementation, supplementing with magnesium, even something as simple and inexpensive as like a Epsom salt bath. So you absorb some magnesium transdermally, even that helps sufficient salt in the diet is a surprising one for people, but that improves insulin sensitivity. Let's see what else inositol, which is like a B vitamin vitamin-like compound, really highly effective at improving insulin sensitivity. It's used very commonly for PCOS, which a typical case of PCOS, though not all have some level of insulin resistance going on. And they have done studies where they use inositol through pregnancy, and it both reduces the incidence of gestational diabetes or in women who have gestational diabetes can reduce their insulin resistance. Really, it seems to be quite effective at lowering fasting blood sugar in some cases. And then, you know, you get into all the B vitamins, you know, thiamine plays a role. They all kind of function together. A lot of these metabolic processes are interrelated. You know, you have certain enzymes that are reliant on certain minerals to function Mm -hmm. properly, which process a lot of your B vitamins. Like there's things that act in concert. So I think in general, I didn't have to get into often all of these nitty gritty details on the client level. If we really kind of like back up a bit, stop being obsessive about reducing your salt intake, which is definitely different than the guidelines. That improves your insulin sensitivity right there. Eat a sufficient amount of protein because your protein foods are often your foods that are richest in many of these minerals and many of these B vitamins, especially if we start incorporating things like organ meats, encouraging people to consume egg yolks, also including plant-based proteins as well, like legumes and nuts and seeds are helpful. Lower carb dairy products can be helpful. That'll get you some of your you know, vitamin D coming in from the diet. Fish and seafood will get you some of that vitamin D coming in from the diet as well as lots of different minerals and your DHA. And so all of these work together. And a lot of times if we just take it back to food, the like nitty gritty details take care of themselves. There is certainly a time and place for supplementation. But if I'm going back to like that original role that I was in in a perinatology practice, we were working with very low income women. So we weren't really talking supplementation. We were talking very basic food source nutrients. Another one to throw out there is glycine, a really important amino acid in pregnancy that does improve blood sugar handling, also lowers blood pressure. So if I could encourage women to go back to some of their traditional eating practices of eating those detail, making bone broth, using the tough cuts of meat. All of these things, by the way, tended to be less expensive. So they were already things traditionally they had done before they had been like acclimated to terrible Western diet. Go back to what their grandma and great grandma did. We would see really great improvements on their blood sugar levels as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. Oh, as a child of someone that had gestational diabetes... (laughs) I thank you for this conversation. And I want to bring it back to, you were just talking about, you went back to practice. You were talking about working in that practice in California. So now is the time for that question to come back. There are a lot of health professionals that listen to this podcast and there's a lot of dietitians. And what would you say to them if they'd like to start implementing some of the real food for gestational diabetes guidelines, but they're getting a little bit of kickback from some of the staff or they need help educating them or kind of making a case for this? The Czech Republic study. No, just kidding. Right? Right. I I need to get
1: some of those things translated for me. I'll have to reach out to my contacts over there. This is like what I've heard like around the block from other dietitians because there have been some clinics in the U.S. who have been successful in revising their individual clinics guidelines and their handouts for clients. So it might start with something subtle, such as reducing the quote minimum carb level that your clinic recommends or dropping that there's even such a thing as a minimum carb level. Cause that's actually not supported by the research. A lot of what I've heard is that people have actually brought in a copy of real food for gestational diabetes into their clinic or given it to their clinic director and be like, read this, this makes sense. And in practice, we are seeing that a lot of these women are not able to tolerate this level of carbs. You could bring in some case studies if you have actually experimented with it, if you're brave enough to do that in practice without like a sign off by your higher ups. Show the results in practice or maybe you've experimented with yourself. Hey, I got a CGM or I've been using a blood sugar meter at home and I can bring down my average, you know, post meal blood sugar reading by like 20 or 30 points if I just eat slightly lower carb and this seems like it would work with our clients as well. I do have like professional training opportunities on gestational diabetes. So if they're open to it, you know, I have a Women's Health Nutrition Academy webinar on gestational diabetes that goes through a lot of this and a lot of the evidence on the ketone conversation. And that's something where you could recommend that they watch that webinar and take into account that information, that research. I think the biggest like pushback that you usually get, and this is my experience anyways, was the idea of going low carb because people are concerned about the safety of nutritional ketosis. And there's actually a lot of research on this now, essentially it all backs up what I have been saying this for like a decade, but um, a 2021 study came out saying that there was insufficient evidence to support current recommendations on necessary carbohydrate intake and avoidance of ketones. I'm quoting this. We propose that current recommendations for pregnant women to consume a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrate per day and to consume a diet that does not result in ketones to be reviewed. There is insufficient evidence to support either of these recommendations and they have the potential to limit the ability of women with diabetes and pregnancy to restrict their carbohydrate intake in an effort to control blood glucose levels. In addition, given the high prevalence of maternal ketones, these recommendations have the potential to cause unnecessary anxiety among pregnant women. There's actually like freaking research out there, which is saying exactly what I laid out in real food for gestational diabetes in the last chapter that goes through the safety of low carb and ketones in pregnancy. So if they're not responsive to a book, bring in research papers. Some of these things are hard to find. I mean, I'm pretty much full time in research mode, like research and writing and educating. And a lot of clinicians don't have the luxury of time to do those things, which is why I'm like suggesting you use some of my resources to like, I've done the work for you. Most of us don't have the time to sit down and do a thorough literature review and spend like a hundred hours I've done that for you. Chapter 11 of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes has shifted the standard of practice in a lot of clinics. So I suggest you bring that to their attention. And hopefully they will be willing, bring in some case studies with your clients or with yourself and your blood sugar levels and see if they're responsive to it.
0: And where can people find you online? Because you do put out some great, I think you call them research briefs on your blog.
1: Yeah. So my uh, research briefs, I typically post on Instagram, my longer articles, I post on my website. So on Instagram, you can find me at Lily Nichols RDN, And my website is the same. So Lily Nichols that has like 250 plus articles. These days, I'm including my research citations at like the bottom of the article, if you want to go and read the primary source research. There's a lot of stuff up there. I can get my books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. I link out to those on my website. You can also find them on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And yeah, just good luck. Keep pushing the needle to the dietitians that are reading. We need more clinicians who are, you know, open to reviewing new research and shifting their practice as a result. I mean, we don't have to be stuck in the 1980s with our recommendations, especially if we're seeing that it is not improving our clients outcomes. It's really up to you to advocate for better on behalf of your clients.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. When trying to conceive and grow a small human or nourish yourself through some of the tough stuff our bodies have to deal with day to day, a high quality prenatal is your first insurance policy. Unlike the majority of prenatal supplements, Fullwell Prenatal exceeds current safety standards by independent testing for heavy metals, allergens, and other contaminants on every single batch produced, which is absolutely the exception in the supplement industry. Longtime private practice functional medicine dietitian and mother, Fullwell Prenatal creator Ayla Barmer has a deep knowledge on the needs and challenges of women before, during, and after pregnancy you can feel confident in the year she spent curating the best forms of nutrients for full well and dosages that actually align with research and a gentle, easy to use formula that doesn't upset your stomach. Check out the new website at fullwellfertility.com and use the code less stress to get a discount on your order. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's review dot forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.